you're listening to For Me Podcast. In this podcast, we're looking at the little wading birds that you see hopping along on the shoreline on Formby Beach. They're looking for food, they're looking for all sorts of little tiny bivalves and they come from all over the world to eat these little bivalves. This is their story, thanks to Richard Defoe for his interview. I've just arrived on Formby Beach. Um, I'm walking down on the sand. I'm walking to the shoreline and I see a flock of birds, a, a grey flock of birds. They look like a carpet, all little tiny birds together. Um, so I'm walking onto Formby Shore. How do I, what am I looking for? Um uh, do you mean in terms of identifying what species they are or um, sort of colouring type thing or anything like that? Yeah, because, well, I generally can't get close enough um, to, to see those little birds close up with yeah. the, with, without having binoculars. Okay. So if I, if I walk onto Formby Shore and I see a little group of birds together... And then they all fly off together in a murmuration. Are those knots? Um, they could be. There, there's two, two or three species that could be. Um, knots generally form these very dense carpets at high tide roosts. And they can pack in so densely that they can't all take off at once. As when they open their wings, they're on top of the wings are pushing down on other birds. So they can take three or four waves to take off. Um, Another option for the kind of bird it would be would be a sandling, which are much whiter, and they generally don't flock so densely, but they run around like clockwork toys, uh, and that's their kind of key feature in winter. So these very pale birds that, that do form flocks, but they run around very readily. The final option would be something like dumlin, uh, which again form fairly tight flocks, but nowhere near as tight as knots, and they're very much smaller again uh, than knots. So, so when you say about um, what size is, is the biggest of these birds? Um, a knot um, has a wingspan of about 30 centimetres and weighs around 130 grams. Um, so it's about the size of a uh large blackbird or field bear so a blackbird is probably something that you know she mean that everybody would sort of know and and how big is a sandling um a sandling is uh a bit smaller than a starling so they're they're about uh 45 or 50 grams um so about under half the weight of a of a knot and they're white in in winter yes they are white and so are these birds on formby shore all year round um not yes um but it may not necessarily be the same same bird um there, there's certainly a lot of turnover in not using the northwest uh and not have a very interesting life cycle uh, which which I can go through if you want to explain a bit about why there's so much turnover of birds at Formby. Yeah, that would be superb. That would be great. 
So um, the life cycle of a knot obviously starts as an egg. And um, when the egg is laid, uh, there's normally a clutch of four. These are these are laid in the high Arctic, so Greenland or Canada for the ones that winter at Formby. And over about three weeks, the clutch of four eggs are incubated in rotation by the male and female. And within a day of the eggs hatching, the females leave, uh, leaving the male knot to do all the parental care of these chicks. Now the chicks, as soon as they hatch, they can feed themselves. Uh, so the care from the adult, from the male, is purely providing warmth and providing protection from predators. When the chicks get to, to be able to fly, the males then clear off, uh, leaving the chicks to fend for themselves and work out where they need to go on migration. So as, as they get ready to fledge and start to migrate, they'll form flocks on the shores of Greenland and Canada. And then they'll migrate uh, southeastwards towards Iceland, Norway, and eventually the UK, Netherlands. Uh, and they, they turn up all over the place because they have no idea where they're going. They have no guidance from adults. Uh, and they just crop up in autumn in very strange places. So there were records in Lincolnshire this autumn on, in the Trent Valley. Uh, we've had birds in Staffordshire, uh, but the bulk will end up on the coast and they'll normally join molting flocks of adults that have been around for a few weeks. Now, over the next winter, they'll, they'll feed up because the primary aim over winter for nearly all shorebirds is to survive. And the following spring, the adults will then disappear back to the Arctic but the immature birds, so the second year birds, will stay in the UK um, to complete their moult. So they will replace all their flight feathers in the June and July of the second year of life. And then after that, they start uh, to behave more like adults. So the following year, they will migrate north to Canada and Greenland and then start to breed and then come back and moult and then spend the winter. So the first two years of the life of a knot is very different, but then it becomes very, very much the same. Which is spend the winter, survive, go up to the Arctic to breed, come back, molt, maybe move again and spend the winter back at their wintering site. That is absolutely superb, Richard. Absolutely brilliant. I love the fact that Dad looks after the babies. Well, he's not a very good Dad, as he clears off when they're about three, four weeks old. Yeah, at least he stays for three or four weeks, yeah. doesn't he? I like the fact... So has the mother gone on to have no. more eggs? Is that's why No, um, they come back. Uh, they're the first to arrive back in, on the wintering grounds. It is probably to do with survival. Um, now... A lot of wading birds uh, live a long time, so a knot can live for 20 years. And in that time, they only need to produce two viable chicks for the population to remain stable, two viable chicks that go on to breed. So what matters to a knot, rather than producing chicks every year, is to survive every year. 
because if they put everything into breeding and then die, they're not going to produce um, a stable population. So if they um, feel that their risk to life is greater than the chance of success, they will not breed. Um, and it's quite likely the females leave early because um, that is the best for the species survival as a whole, rather than them staying in the Arctic where conditions can get bad quite quickly. So it's a way of um, increasing the chance of surviving in future years. Gosh, that is an amazing. So they're a very successful uh, breed of bird. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or are they endangered? Are they endangered? Um, neither, really. Um, I think with the natural world, any species that is still alive, you can regard as a success in that those that have failed are no longer on the planet. Um, so, yes, they are a success, but they're also at the very extremes. So there's some races of knot that breed in the most northerly parts of the Arctic and winter at the very southern tip of Argentina or in New Zealand or Australia. These are massive migrations. They're 12, 13,000 kilometres, some of them. And to do that, they have to have had a lot of evolutionary pressure to push them further and further um, away from breeding and wintering grounds. So why do they keep going back to such a cold place to have their babies? Um, there's an awful lot of insects. So the chicks feed on uh, mosquitoes mostly. Uh, and in the high Arctic, there is a vast amount of insects every June, June, July. Um, so the food source is unlimited. However, over winter, the food source in the Arctic is pretty poor as it's quite cold and quite dark. They breed in the uplands um, rather than on the shore. Uh, so the, there's no uh, crustaceans and bivalves for them to eat there, which is what they feed on in winter. So the diet of a uh, nestling knot is very different to the diet of an adult knot. So what does an adult knot eat? Um, bivalves, so uh, cockles. Um, any very small shellfish, really, uh, and crustaceans in general. Razor, were those razor shells? Were uh, they they're a bit big. Um, Macoma, I think, is the kind of scientific name of one of their favourite food sources. And what brings them to Formby then? The cockles and the little tiny shellfish that they find in the sand or the shrimps? Um, yes. Um, it, it's the diverse food supply and the large amount of mudflats. So they walk quite a long distance in, in their feeding. They'll take, take a step and then peck and then take another step and peck. And they will walk miles in a tidal cycle following the tide edge to um, to collect the food. So where you find knot, there's generally, in winter, there's generally large amounts of intertidal knot, such as the Wash, Morecambe Bay, 
formed the uh, Liverpool Bay, uh, the Wadden Sea in Holland. Uh, these are all vast intertidal areas, and that is exactly the habitat that not need in winter. So do they, um, the, do I, if I wanted to see a knot, um, I can go any time of the year in Formby. And, I, and, and is it always the incoming tide or is it the outgoing tide? Um, there, there will always be some high tide roosts, uh, whether that's around Formby Point or up near Ainsdale. Uh, the very best times to see them will be in April and May, early May, when they're molting into their breeding plumage, and they go from this very dull grey, fairly nondescript bird to a bright orange bellied um, and really rich backed wading bird. And they really stand out, particularly if you see them coming into land, uh, as this orange glow from the whole flock. Now, this may seem like a really odd plumage to protect them from predators, but when they go into the high Arctic, they're breeding in a very uh, colourful environment and they blend in very well, so they're very hard for predators to see. But then if I'm seeing them in November, would I be seeing them in different... They'd be wearing uh, They certainly would be. They'd, they'd be very grey on the back and fairly pale on the belly. Um, just a fairly nondescript small brown bird, well, medium-sized small brown bird. But in yeah. a big flock that are yeah. all really packed together. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so this sort of so that's amazing that they stay in Formby at all the different times. I'm going through yeah. my list of what I've got here. Um, I've got why do they come? Um, so when you say where they come from, um, do they come from the North um, Pole? Not quite. Um, they need they need Arctic tundra to breed on. Uh, so the bulk of the records of uh, not wintering in Britain on their breeding grounds are from, uh, I'm just pulling up a map here, uh, Northwest Iceland and uh, Canada, um, alert being the uh, most common place, which is about the most northerly point in Canada. Yes, alert. alert. A-L-E-R-T. Uh, is that an alert yes. as a place, is it? So they go from Canada, but there's nothing to eat in North America or in Canada. They come to the UK, or is that um, Well, that's quite interesting as well. If you draw a map, draw a line from alert to, um, let's say, Florida, uh, which is kind of a nice parts of the world with lots of beaches to uh, spend the winter on. Uh, that's about six and a half thousand kilometers. Whereas if you come from Alert to the Ribble Estuary or uh, Formby, it's only 3,700 kilometers. So it may be on a different continent, but the UK is much closer to their breeding grounds than uh, large parts of North America. Um, right, okay. And the, the other sorry, big factor on. there is because of the Gulf Stream and Jet Stream, 
the UK is very warm for its latitude. So we're about level with um, Montreal uh, in terms of latitude. In fact, Montreal's further south than we are. But they're very much colder. And if there were beaches, well, the beaches on the coast around Maine and uh, southern Canada, they will be frozen for much of the winter. Whereas it's quite rare to see ice forming on, on intertidal in the UK. So there's much greater food availability with a much shorter migration than if they were staying on the same continent. And so when they come to Formby, where do they go to sleep? Where do they rest or do um, they not rest? They, they, they rest at high tide. So around high tide, there's no food availability as it's all covered up. So they will come into these large high tide roosts and they will sleep in those. There'll always be some that are awake. Uh, quite often you'll see them there with one eye open, keeping an eye out for predators. But that's one of the reasons why they're in a big flock, because they can uh, share the watching for predators. Uh, so that's a very effective way for them to get some sleep while they don't have somewhere safe to roost. So something like a uh, blue tit in your garden will go and spend the night in a nest box or a crack in a tree or under the eaves of a house if there's a small hole. And they, they'll have a lot of physical protection from predators. Whereas a knot doesn't do that, that's always out in the open. So it, it needs some way to avoid predators and being in a large group is a very effective way of doing that. So when so at high tide, they don't go into a tree uh, then to roost. They, they sit on, on the, sand, the sand, normally just above high tide, and they'll potentially be in a flock of 20 or 30 or 40,000. Earlier this year at Snetchen RSPB Reserve on the East Coast, there were counts of about 140,000 knots in a single roost. Wow, so on Formby Beach, how many would be in a group? Or a flock? How many would be um, in a flock? Potentially, there's twenty or thirty thousand in a in a roost on a a good day. Um, so that that would normally be around the time of the spring passage when the birds are getting ready to migrate. Quite a few come into the area to fatten up on the excellent food reserves that Formby has. And so I would see a flock of 20 or 30,000 in Essentially, April or yes. May. On a good side, um, with everything in your favour. And would, um, is that when I see a mermaid? Uh, you can see those at any time with knots. Um, the best times are on the big tides where they're having to move to uh, beaches that do not fully cover. Um, on the smaller tides, they'll often be in smaller groups because there's so many more places that they can go to. Uh, knots are very mobile as well, so they may well um, uh, use the D on smaller tides and then come to uh, form B on a different state of tide. They're, they're a very versatile species. So the knot that are in Formby could whiz down to the Wirral and then whiz back up to Southport like we would go Pretty to Chesterhead? Pretty much. Um, last winter we had 
one knot that was seen at Marshside, so a bit further north of Formby, and that was mostly on the neap tides. And on the spring tides, it was re roosting at Hesham, Hesham Harbour in North Lancashire. And then on the neap tides, it was back at Marshside. So that so it was so that so that bird then is going from marsh side yep. which is southport it's going all would it go around the actual coastline past filed blackpool and then it would go round to hesham and then pretty much uh, yes back. yeah uh we only have one example of that but other species we, we have had doing fairly long distance movements depending on um the parts of the tidal cycle we were in and how long will it take to do that flight then from Hesham down to Marshside um, South? Quicker than we can drive it, so probably about 45 minutes. When I, when you sort of see them, they sort of fly like a magic carpet. Is that because there's just so many yes, of them? Yes, yeah. Um, normally when you see them, it's when they've been concentrated by the tide. Uh, so they do form these very tight flocks. Uh, and as the tide goes out and they've got much more areas feed on, they spread out so you'll see flocks of 20 or 30 rather than thousands and, and, and thousands. So on Formby Beach, I would generally be looking for a, a group of about 30 or uh, 20 uh, to Potentially. Um, a, a lot depends on tide states and how much disturbance they've had uh, and whether peregrines have been around. Because they, they cause an awful lot of disturbance of um, of high tide roosts, and that can split them into smaller groups. And so, if um, so, I can see them all year round, but I might see youngsters that are staying for waiting for their second year to come, or I could see the older birds that are just coming down. But is this just pure nature that takes them back to Iceland and Greenland? Yes, yeah. Uh, so they're. The desire for birds to breed is great, and the the nearest place that has suitable habitat for them is in the very high Arctic. And for us, the nearest bit of high Arctic is Greenland, uh, Greenland and Canada, and that's that's where they go. So when I see a group on Formby Beach, are they just a random group that have all got together or are they all the same? Uh, there'll be a random group. Um, yeah, there'll be a random group. Unless it, it's in late June when they're probably second year birds that have not migrated and starting their molds. So that and then, and then will they when they go to their molts then would they go to orange or would they, they, they go to grey again because they're coming? They stay grey because they, they don't they have molt. any need to put on a stunning breeding plumage, and putting that breeding plumage on is quite uh, energy intensive. So they only do it uh, when they're they're ready to go up to the Arctic to breed, uh, as it clearly increases their risks of being spotted by a predator here. Uh, so there's no no good reason to have it for long here, uh, but it becomes very much more useful in the Arctic. And the window, when they get to the Arctic to breed, is very small. So that they will arrive on their breeding grounds in 
in the first few days of June, up to the middle of June, and the window they have to lay their eggs before there won't be time for the chicks to fledge is probably only a matter of a week or two. So if their eggs are predated after they've been laid, that's it for the year. That's the end of the breeding season and they come back. So they nest, they yeah, have really a lot of eggs. And that's it for the year. So um, can you describe, because um, I know you sort of said that, so if, if I walk onto Formby Beach and I see a group of little birds, possibly 20 or 30, they could be knots or they could be sandlings or they could be, there's no way that I can see, because I mean, I'm obviously not an expert, but it was, it's always quite nice to sort of look at something and go, oh, yeah, that's what um, it, it's, it's not easy because um, most waders in winter are broadly speaking grey, apart from oyster catchers, which are black, black and white, but uh, the smaller uh, waders like Donlin and Knots are mostly grey. And generally, if you see a group on the Formby shore in winter, they will be not, unless they're quite a bit smaller and very pale when they'll be sampling. And so would you describe a yes, knot as yeah, a wading bird? Um, they're part of the group known as sandpipers. Um, is probably the largest group of waders out there um, in terms of number of species within that group. So if I, if you were to describe a knot... So a knot uh, is fairly pale on the belly with a uniform grey back, um, a bill that is about as long as its legs, bill's black, slight, slight down curve on it, and the legs are generally fairly dark. Um, it, it's quite a chunky bird for its size, uh, but it's still a relatively small bird. Um, it, one of the things that you will often see stand in the tide edge as it comes up, and it will rise and rise. So they uh, rise and rise around them, and they will be one of the last birds to take off. Uh, now, their scientific name is Calidris cunutus, uh, and they got the second name cunutus after after the famous king that tried to turn the tide back, King Canute. So um, the, the description, their scientific description, is uh, the bird that waits for the tide. So when you're describing a knot, then it's sort of if you said a blackbird had a little bill. Yeah, uh, the bill on a knot is about um, three and a half centimeters long, so um, inch and a half um, from the the front of the head to the tip of the bill. But when I'm going down, I can't get close enough to see them, can I? So when the if, if the dog runs, um, they certainly them, will. Um, disturbance is is a huge problem on the on the coast. Um, so to get a good view of them, you do need binoculars or a telescope. And then, do you um, sort of when they uh, they, they they sort of uh, feed all night as well? They will. Yes, the they feed by. Um, 
the feel. They've got um, nerve endings in their bill. And when they probe the mud, they feel when there's, um, when there's food there. Uh, so they don't really need that much light to feed. Wow, so they're actually, so they're basically just, they're not bothered about the light that, that we have. They don't bother about no. the late, the dark nights around here then. No, they'll, they'll probably feed more effectively in daylight, but they can feed at night. And they'll just all just get up and they'll just head down to the shore, the, the tides right out, and they'll all go in the dark and all yeah, and start looking exactly for shells and things. Gosh, that's great. Yeah. You're doing a ringing program, aren't you? So you're doing the ringing program. And how uh, do you We use them? something called a cannon net, which is a, um, a net that's about uh, 20 metres wide and eight metres long. And we wait for the birds to uh, get in front of the net and then we'll uh, fire it over the, net, over the birds, flock of birds, uh, at their high tide roost. So that, that's a very effective way of catching waders at a high tide roost. Um, and it, it's also a, um, a very good time to catch the birds because it's when they can't feed anyway because all their feeding grounds are covered. Uh, out of um, a roost and ringing and processing them, has minimal impact on their feeding time because it's a time when they can't feed. Um, so that, that, that's when we'll catch them. There'll normally be a group of about 15 of us, although this year that's been a bit more challenging with restrictions. So we've um, had to try for smaller catches with a smaller team. And I bet that's a challenge, it, is it? It, it, it has been. Uh, we, we succeeded in July. Um, and marked, colour marked another 80 knots, uh, which were mostly the second year birds. And just yesterday, we had news of um, one of them that we marked in July that was seen at Southport until uh, late August. It was seen on uh, one of the Scottish islands yesterday in the Hebrides, which is a really surprising movement for a knot um, from. July, where we'd expect it to be near to its wintering ground to go 300 kilometres north into Scotland for winter. Uh, it's normally most birds go south for the winter, but uh, this one's gone north. The, the first catch we had at Formby where we were colouring them in September 2017, we colouring uh, just short of 500 that day. Um, we've released them all by the time their feeding grounds were were exposing so they've been out of circulation for a couple of hours in keeping cages where they're nice and warm and protected from predators uh, and then by the time we've ringed them put colour rings on measured them so we get an idea of their condition measured their state of molt and wing so we can do some work to work out whether they're male or female, um, which which is very useful, actually. I, I can go into more detail of that if you want in a minute. 
So when you're ringing them, did you put a coloured ring on them? So this year, 2017, it's blue, uh, 2018, uh, no. it's red, So we, we put a yellow. metal ring on, which has a unique number and an address. Uh, the address is for the Natural History Museum in London. Uh, and if you do find a dead bird anywhere with a metal ring on it, please do report it to the address on the ring, as it provides so much more information. And the the ringing scheme relies on uh, what's called recoveries of dead birds, as the, this tells us a lot about movement and survival. And with, with the knot at Formby, we've also been adding um, a colour ring and a little coloured flag. The colour ring we're using as a site marker, so we know they're from Formby, and the flag has a two or three letter inscription on it, which can be read through a telescope. Um, and of the, I think it's 1100 knot we've now colour marked around Formby, um, we've had nearly 8,000 subsequent sightings of them. Um, it so is an orange flag over a pale blue ring. That's amazing. So if I wanted to get involved in colour ringing, do you, do you need me if I'm uh, perhaps not the expert? The or, ringing scheme you know, is I'm... always looking for new people to be involved. Um, colour ringing waders is probably not the ideal place to start because we need to deal with relatively large numbers of birds quite quickly. Um, whereas other forms of bird ringing, such as misnetting, the numbers are often lower and we can go at a steadier pace to train people. Um, so getting involved through the BTA website, uh, which has a link to uh, bird ringing, ringing and how to become a trainee ringer is the best place to start how do I get involved? So if I've got a child that's really interested or, or if I'm just looking for a new life and I'm looking at meeting people and doing something for the wildlife. Um, um, go to the BTO website, that's www.bto.org and uh, under volunteer surveys there, there is the ringing scheme there. It's got all the details of how to get involved. And that's uh, BTO, BTA uh, for... Bravo Tango Oscar. So British Trust for Ornithology. And is there an age restriction on how, how young or how old the children um, will, you know, have to be? Not to start training. However, to have a licence to ring on your own, I think it's 16 at the moment. So I could bring a 13, 12, 11, 12, 13-year-old child down to learn, to start learning how uh, to ring yes. birds and get involved? Yes, once you've found a trainer. Um, there may be, uh, for people with an interest in birds, a lot of other BTO surveys which are uh, of... Um, greater interest. Uh, so they have schemes such as Garden Bird Watch, which uh, involves recording the, your birds in your garden weekly and submitting to the BTO, and that's giving fantastic results on um, populations of birds that the ringing scheme monitor quite badly. 
Um, WEBS, the Wetland Bird Survey. This is another excellent scheme which involves monthly high tide counts and very much the work we're doing on the knot complements what it's telling us about how different bird species use different est estuaries around the, the UK. And another very popular scheme is the Breeding Bird Survey, BBS, uh, which involves 1K squares with two visits a year looking for breeding birds. These are all complementary surveys that take more or less time than the ringing scheme does. So there is a survey on with the BTO for everyone. Uh, but when, when we have another opportunity, we will try and colouring a few more birds. So they're, they're providing so much data at a resolution we've never been able to achieve before. Improvements in modern optics, so telescopes and cameras, um, are meaning that we are getting a lot more data from each bird that we colour in. So we're, we're um, getting a sight record Sorry, about eight sight records of every bird we colouring, whereas just a metal ringed bird uh, for a knot, if we got one in 50 back again over its lifetime, that would be a good result. With the colour ringing, we're getting um, eight records per bird. And that gives us such a high resolution as to where birds are and when, that is just such incredible value of data. That's only achievable with the volunteer effort looking for these colouring birds, both um, around Formby and the Sefton coast, up in Morecambe Bay and Iceland, where we've had well over 100 records of birds we've marked at Formby. That is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And then oh, for a noise, do, do, do um, not make amazing. noises. Uh, so when when they're in a group, they kind of uh, make this chattery, very um, gentle chattery noise. And their their song when they're in the Arctic is quite a spooky one, really. So they have a different song when they're in the Arctic. Yeah, so they're, the they're kind of the contact food. calls when they're on on the beach and in roosts is very different to the one they used to attract a mate and very occasionally in probably late may you do hear them singing before they migrate um i normally hear it when i'm in the states because that's where i am in late may uh, working on knots rather than working on them over here which is probably a mistake flying three thousand miles when i could go three instead uh, but uh, yeah, you, you do hear it just yeah. before they migrate quite often, uh, and it, it's one of the the most amazing sounds of any bird, I think. But then I am a bit biased. <laughs> Formby Podcast is an independent production. If you'd like to contact us with your story, or you have a story to tell email us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Formby Podcast comes to you free. If you'd like to contribute 
or get involved as a sponsor, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com or message us Instagram, Absolute Formby. See you next time.